Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, you know, the Gospel of John is a fascinating text. It's a bit like an onion. Uh, when you cut an onion, you realize that there's just kind of layer after layer after layer to cut through. Uh, and the same is true for the Gospel of John. There are multiple layers of meanings uh, that you can just kind of keep peeling and keep peeling. Uh, there's a couple of features, though, of the Gospel of John that make it unique from all the other Gospels. And that is, uh, the first is the signs that we talked about on Easter Sunday, that John organizes his gospel around these seven or eight signs or miracles. Uh, And so prior to the resurrection of Jesus, you have seven signs that are uh, representative of creation, but then when you get to resurrection, it represents the eighth sign, which means it's the first thing of a new creation. And so we, on Easter Sunday, we talked about how this, the, the resurrection is not just kind of like God doing a cool trick or not just ensuring a blissful afterlife for us, um, but rather it's the, that God has launched a new creation project right here and right now that began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues in you and I, as we place our faith in Christ, we are made new creations so that we can then embody what it means to be a citizen or part of God's new creation in the world. And so that's what kind of Easter is all about. And that's why we're celebrating Easter tide, the full seven Sundays of Easter, as we're looking at what does it mean to be new creation citizens. And so that's unique to the Gospel of John, how he organizes that. The other thing that's unique about the Gospel of John uh, that separates it from the other Gospels is these, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes. So seven times Jesus identifies himself with a statement that begins, I am. Now this may not seem significant at all. At first, after all, how else would you begin a sentence that describes yourself other than with the words, I am? Except those statements are actually echoes of God's identification of God's self to Moses in the book of Exodus. Uh, And so Exodus tells the story of when God calls Moses to rescue the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses encounters God in a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. It wasn't being burned up. We like to call it the burning bush, but it's really the non-burning bush, right? (laughs) It's this kind of bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. And then God calls Moses to partnership Uh, where they will work together in order to liberate an enslaved nation. And part of that discussion, part of that whole scene is that Moses says, who am I I to say has sent me to do this? And God replies, tell them I am has sent you. And so God's own identification of God's self is simply I am. Now, scholars have debated for centuries what this means and how we might understand these words of I am. Uh, And there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of opinion, but uh, generally what people uh, think that it means is that this is a description of God's essential nature. 
That God can describe God's self as I am simply because God wasn't created. God has always existed. God is consistent. God is uh, faithful. God is constant. God is I am. And so when Moses receives this calling of, of a task far bigger than himself, uh, the, his first question is, who am I that I should do this, Right? But then the second question is, if I'm going to actually do this and you're going to be with me, then who are you? <laughs> like, who are you that I, that's going to kind of accompany me on this task? And God is simply saying, I am going to be God to you, and I am going to be God with you. I am. It's pretty powerful stuff. And, and so in the Gospel of John, what we find is that Jesus actually echoes this phrase in order to describe himself. It's John, the Gospel writer's way of, of nailing down the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And so Jesus describes himself with these seven I am statements. And in these statements, we find descriptions, or probably better, we find these metaphors of the character of Jesus, or the character of who God is made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to look at one of those statements. The statement, and you probably have guessed it by now uh, through the elements of the worship service, uh, I am the good shepherd. It's found in John chapter 10. And so you can uh, click there, you can churn there, it'll also be up on the screens, but I'm going to read John chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 11, reading through verse 18. And it says this, I am the good shepherd. The, shepherd. the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, but I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I am the good shepherd. Sounds really nice, super encouraging, uh, even inspirational. I mean, this concept of God as good shepherd is great material for decorative blankets, uh, bookmarks. Uh, you could put this passage of Scripture on almost anything that you want to have a little inspirational flair around your house. But let's be honest. Most of us have no idea what a shepherd's life was really like. I mean, when I hear shepherd, I think of cute kids in Christmas programs. Uh, when I, when I, maybe, maybe at the best, I might think of a young man holding a really cute sheep in his arms. Uh, in other words, we've kind of romanticized the vocation of shepherd to the point that we're at risk of losing the real weight 
of Jesus using this vocation as a metaphor for his own vocation, right? We've kind of romanticized the idea or the concept of shepherd that we're, we're really at risk of losing the weight of what Jesus means when he uses this to describe his own vocation in the world. And this actually repeats it twice. He says, I am the good shepherd, and he says it twice. And so what is this passage of Scripture really about? Well, let's try to unpack it a little bit. And in order to unpack it, we actually need to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, The nation of Israel was given a unique vocation by God to be a light to the other nations. Uh, They were to arrange their lives in a way that would honor God. God was to uh, rule over the nation. They were to be led by God. In kind of more popular vernacular at the time, or in a real logistical sense, God was supposed to be the king of Israel. And in, in doing so, God as the king and the people honoring God as king and aligning their lives according to the glory of God, they then would shine a bright light to all the nations to reveal the glory of God in the world. Amen and amen. Except Israel really wanted to have their own king. Because they kind of they wanted a human king. They, they looked around at other nations and and, and what they saw is that other nations were ruled by human kings, and so they go to God, and they say, you know what, we really want our own human king. And so after some discourse, you can read all about this in the Old Testament, after some discourse, God conceded and gives them a king, and gives them a whole line of kings, and they have king after king after king. And Well, if you read the story, it didn't turn out very well. Um, there were a couple of good kings. There were some pretty decent kings, Um, but most kings were corrupted by the power that was given to them. And they didn't facilitate the kingship of God. In other words, they weren't good stewards of kind of God as the king, but I'm going to represent the the God as king to the people, and so I'm going to do that. They, They usually just kind of got caught up in the power of it all and became corrupted by that and began to live in ways that wouldn't instead, that didn't honor God, but instead were kind of self-seeking. What's best for me and how can, how can I uh, benefit from this position of power? It actually caused Israel all kinds of trouble throughout their history. And so many of the kings used their power selfishly, looking out for themselves rather than for the people of their kingdom. Now, alongside of the kings, you also had another role of people in Israel called the prophets. Now, it was the role and and responsibility of the prophets to hear from God and then give a timely word from God for the people of God. Sometimes when we hear the word prophetic, we think kind of future teller or, or, or being able to see into the future. And while that's partly true, the part of being able to see into the future... The the role of the prophet is to be able to look and say, this road that you're on, here's where it's headed. So it's kind of less of future teller and more of of a timely word from God for the people of God for the purpose of repentance. So the prophets are speaking to the nation of Israel, and they're they're trying to bring Israel back. Because a lot of times the nation would just follow kind of the selfish ambitions of the king. And so what happened was, is these these prophets of Israel began to ask some really important questions. They began to ask things like, what makes a good king? They began to ask, what does a good king do? 
Now, this is a really compelling and important question. It may seem simple on the surface, but, but the question of what does a good king do is as relevant today as ever, right? I mean, does a good king make laws that benefit the most privileged class? Does a good king favor those who like him the best? Does a good king pass laws and give rhetoric to a particular group that is a large enough block of the population that it will just keep them in power, regardless of their own convictions or lack thereof? I mean, what does a good king do? These are important and relevant questions, not just to the ancient world, but to our own. And so these prophets were asking these questions and were looking around the world for a picture that might represent what a good king does and what a good king looks like, that might communicate sort of a, a, a word picture to the nation and the people of Israel. And guess what? They came across the vocation and the picture of a shepherd. And the prophets were like, that's it. That's the picture of what a good king is supposed to be like. And so the image of the shepherd became a way of talking about what it means to be a proper king. And so the prophets would talk about God as the shepherd over God's people. The prophets would compare and contrast, here's what a good shepherd does, and here's what a bad shepherd does. And God is the good shepherd. It became, the, the image of the shepherd became a subversive way of talking about kingship. Yeah? I can see some of you. Yeah? With me? With me? Good? And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it makes sense that to make this connection between the role of a king and the role of a shepherd, after all, the life of a shepherd wasn't all baz and soft wool. <laughs> I worked on that all week. <laughs> I mean, shepherding was hard work, right? Shepherding is hard work, and it was lonely work. And because the herd was nomadic, they didn't have any place to call their own home. In, in many ways, the land that was made available to them was all their home. Like the, the home of the shepherd was kind of all of it which is to say it was none of it, right? I mean, if, if the whole land is yours, then none of the land is truly yours. You have no place to call home. Is this starting to sound like the role of a king or a leader who owns all of the land? And maybe he has a castle to live in, that's pretty cool, but being a king and a leader can also be lonely business. And the shepherd was also responsible for leading the flock. And I want you to hear that. The shepherd was responsible for leading the flock. This is different than the cowboy west. In the cowboy west, the, the cowboy drives the cattle from behind or from the side with the, with the riding of the horse, the cracking of the whip, with the yells of his voice. The cowboy drives the herd of, of, uh, of cattle from behind. But a shepherd doesn't do that. The shepherd is no cowboy. <laughs> the shepherd goes out in front of the herd and says, come, follow me. And the shepherd and the, and the herd follows from behind. The flock listens, becomes familiar with the voice of the shepherd, and then follows. 
It was also the responsibility of the shepherd to feed the herd, to feed the flock. And by that, I don't mean like pick up the grass and put it in their mouth, or by that, I don't mean like get out a bunch of pet bowls that are just filled with uh, earthly things, right, and put them in the bowl. By that, I mean it was the responsibility of the shepherd to lead uh, the sheep to a place of abundance, where there was food for plenty, there was plenty of food for all of the sheep. And also, the, the shepherd was responsible for protecting uh, the flock against potential predators, as Grace mentioned in her uh, children's message. And I'm not wearing my sheep hat, but her point was good, right? It's uh, this: the shepherd would often, at risk to themselves, serve as the protector of the flock against predators. Sometimes going quite literally to battle for the herd of sheep. What this meant was that the only way to be a good shepherd was to be selfless. So it makes sense, doesn't it, to make the connection between a shepherd and a king. Because after all, what is a king supposed to do? What is the role of a king? And what kinds of things do good kings do? And so with these, with these kind of commonalities of protection, of abundance, of, of, of selflessness, the prophets began to declare that the Lord is the shepherd over Israel, which is essentially a way of saying that God is their true king in the midst of failed kings. <laughs> so then we come to John chapter 10, Right? Um, I promise you that's not just the introduction to the message. (laughs) Some of you are like, this could be a long one, right? So then we come to John chapter 10, and Jesus makes the statement where he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, you have to understand that for those who are hearing it for the first time, they've kind of got a little more background uh, than we do in terms of what it means to be a shepherd and how this imagery of shepherd has been substituted for kingship, right? And so when Jesus says this, there's all sorts of things that are going off in their lives in terms of understanding. And Jesus will even explicitly say, I lay down my life for the sheep. Because in order to be a good shepherd, you've got to be willing to do that. You've got to be able to put, be willing to put yourself at risk for the good of the herd, for the good of the sheep. And so this, this statement from Jesus of I am the good shepherd is actually charged with a sense of identity that goes way beyond Jesus' gentle and kind. Now I should say here, I believe that Jesus is gentle and kind. But that's not all it means to say that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is saying, I am the long-awaited, I am Israel's long-awaited Messiah and true king. And the only remedy for the failed failure of Israel's shepherds was for God to become the shepherd, God's self, himself, Right? And so Jesus will actually say, look at these who have heard my voice and followed in my way. And in John chapter 9, we just heard the story of a blind man whom Jesus healed and then was questioned. And the blind man gives a testimony of, I don't know how all this went down. All I know is I once was blind, but now I see. 
And so he's giving a testimony to the kind of his, his experience of Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus has changed me. Like, and so Jesus says, look at these, these who have heard my voice, who have followed me, including this blind man who has just given testimony. And then Jesus will also explicitly say, just in case we didn't understand what a good shepherd does, Jesus will say, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is in sharp contrast to Old Testament prophets who would talk about a good shepherd versus a bad shepherd, in particular, the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, he, this, there's this comparison, this contrast between the good and the bad shepherd. And Ezekiel says uh, that, uh, that the bad shepherd is willing to protect himself and his own reputation at the expense of the sheep. Right? So it's kind of a me first shepherding deal. And Ezekiel, the prophet, says that's kind of a bad shepherd. If you're willing to give up the whole flock of sheep, you're not doing it right. <laughs> right? And then he compares a good shepherd, the good shepherd who's willing to protect the sheep, including, including when the sheep are facing danger, the shepherd will go out to meet the danger head on and if necessary, take upon himself the fate that would have befallen the sheep. Did you hear that? If necessary, would go out ahead of the danger, face the danger head on, and take on the fate that would have befallen the sheep had the shepherd not been there. Now, this should hopefully sound familiar given the context of the message. Where Jesus, the good shepherd, has done precisely this for us. There is an enemy coming toward us, and we are in danger. We are in danger of believing lies about ourselves. We are in danger of seeing ourselves as better than others. We are in danger of consuming so much that we deplete the resources the planet has to offer. We are in danger of not seeing the humanity in people who are not like me. We are in danger of nationalism. We are in danger of believing that our fellow human being is the problem when the scripture tells us clearly that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We are in danger. And the biblical term, the shorthand way of talking about all these kinds of dangers, because I've kind of, kind of talk, I've talked about corporate dangers, but we personally might also be in danger of overconsumption, of habitual lying, of some sort of addictions. Like there's all kinds of ways in which this thing finds its way into our hearts and into our lives, both personally and corporately. And the biblical term that we are in danger of is called sin. But here's the good news this morning. Jesus, the good shepherd, saw the danger went out ahead 
took that danger all upon himself so that we might be freed from it. In fact, took the, not only took the, the danger of sin upon himself, but also came to the fate that would have befallen us otherwise. Because the Apostle Paul says the cost or the wage of sin is death. And so Jesus takes on all of this sin and all of this ugliness and this darkness and this evil, and it in fact kills him. Until it didn't. <laughs> Until he defeated death through resurrection, which is what we celebrate at Eastertide. And we always are celebrating it on Sundays, right? Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday where we celebrate that Jesus is risen. But during the seven weeks of Eastertide, we turn the celebration up to 11. Okay? And so we're in this season and we're recognizing this is in fact what the good shepherd has done for us. He has gone out ahead of us. He has taken on sin and he has defeated sin through resurrection so that we might be freed from it. Amen. That's the good news. And so that by the spirit of Christ who lives in us, we can then be freed from the reigning reign of sin or the power of sin in our lives. Amen. And that doesn't mean that we don't ever sin. It means that we're freed from the power of sin. Okay? It doesn't mean that we don't slip up or mess up or any of that kind of stuff. God's grace is real. God's forgiveness is wide. But so too is his work on the cross for us. Amen. And so Jesus takes this metaphor and he says, look at the sheep who have, followed, who have heard my voice and followed me. I myself will lay down my life for the sheep. But then he says something that just really gets under our skin. Because that was all like really great news, right? I mean, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. This is all great news. Thank you for going out and meeting the danger ahead of us. Yay, 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 and amen. This is great. And then he drops the next thing where he says, uh, you know, I've got other sheep who are not in this sheep pen. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, this is supposed to be great news, and it, but just like... But then he comes in with this scandalous claim that there are other sheep who are in the fold. And to an ancient Israelite, this would have been like all sorts of scandalous. This is maybe the first seeds of saying, hey, this is kind of like, I'm not just Israel's Messiah, I'm the world's Messiah. This isn't just for Israelites, this is for Gentiles too. And the people that you are ready to just keep out of this whole thing, this whole good news project, are actually going to be included in this thing. And what a scandalous word for us today. Right? Because as soon as you thought that the good news was only for people like you, or just as soon as you thought that you, know, you knew who was in and who was out, and just as soon as you had clearly drawn the lines of the sheep pen, the shepherd goes and welcomes other people. And you're like, what? <laughs> I saw something on social media recently that I wanted to, to share with you. It was... 
a simple statement, but I think a powerful statement. And it was this. I'd rather be excluded for the people I include than included for the people I exclude. Let that one sit. I'd rather be excluded for the people I include rather than included for the people I exclude. And so Jesus has these kind of three things. Hear my voice and follow me. See that I've laid down my life for the sheep. And oh, by the way, there's other people who are in the fold that maybe you didn't think about or anticipate. My invitation to you this week is this. Um, first of all, see the danger. Be honest about it. Be discerning about it, self-discerning about it. Is there any danger approaching? Don't be complacent anymore. But like, just kind of look at the landscape of your own life, of your own heart, of the world, and just see the danger. But then recognize and hear the good, the voice of the good shepherd who has gone out ahead of us in order that we might be freed from those dangers and respond to the voice of the good shepherd. Because the good shepherd has done the work on the cross in order that, he, that we might be freed from the danger that we face. And the theological word for this is that we have been forgiven in Christ. You know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is refusing to define the relationship based on the offense. That's forgiveness. And, and I don't know about you and I, but when I'm offended and somebody like hurts me and someone wrongs me, I tend to define the whole relationship according to that offense. That person did that. Right? And, and, and what God does, what God the good shepherd does, is he goes out to meet the danger so that we might be forgiven. And so what God does is God does not define the, our relationship to God according to the offense, but rather according to our potential. Holy cow, that's good news. Right? I mean, whoa. Imagine that a relationship is not defined by the worst part of it. <laughs> Isn't that what we tend to do? We just define the whole thing by the worst part. And so my invitation is see the danger. Hear the voice of the shepherd. Respond to, the, to God's voice. Receive forgiveness. And then recognize, and, and then maybe refuse to start drawing lines. Because usually what happens is we, we do all of that, and then we, we feel like we're kind of in, and then we just want to like start, start like drawing little things all around us, and this, you're in and out, and all the, you know, and, and, and then I think the invitation today is resist the temptation to draw lines around the pen, <laughs> and just recognize that the grace of God is probably far wider and more beautiful than we would ever dare to imagine. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, today we are so thankful for the good news of the Good Shepherd. Thank you, God, for going out ahead of us to face the danger, for taking on the same fate that would face us, but then defeating death through resurrection so that we may also have the hope of new life. Redeemed bodies and new creation. God, we give you thanks and praise for this beautiful message. May we hear it and receive it today. And Lord, May, we, may your Holy Spirit give us courage to respond in the way that is appropriate for us to respond. There may be some of us here today that need to just recognize that there is a danger facing us, that we haven't recognized that we've become complacent about. And so, Lord, help us just to be honest and to admit out loud the danger than to hear your voice. Receive your forgiveness and walk in new life. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We pray now that you would meet us as we gather around your table today. As a remembrance, as also as a celebration, and also as an enactment of our unity in you. In many ways, communion is an embodiment that the, it's not just us in the pen. But this thing is for anybody that would come and respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd. So God be with us in these moments around your table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.